0: Something happened in 2020. Well, lots of things happened in 2020, but I'm thinking of something in particular, and really it's not something that happened, but rather something that didn't happen. It's lots of things that didn't happen. All over the world, from London and Manchester in the UK to Melbourne, Perth and Canberra in Australia, Berlin and Bonn in Germany, Shanghai in China, Vienna in Austria, Sao Paulo in Brazil, literally all over the world. Concert halls and music venues spent months, and in some cases, years, putting together event programs related to the music of Ludwig van Beethoven. You see, 2020 was the 250th anniversary of the composer's birth. It was a big symbolic year, lots of things planned, but then, well, you know what happened next. Some events were able to switch things up a bit and move online, but most of them had to just be cancelled, all these long-planned concerts down the drain. And this is a tragedy for all the thousands of people who spent so much time putting these events together. But I think it's less of a tragedy for Beethoven himself, long rest his soul. He's by far the most performed classical composer all around the world. And his music extends far, far beyond the walls of concert halls to all sorts of unexpected corners of our lives. Take those four notes Da 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 da! They're probably the most heard bit of classical music ever. Well, no, actually, that title goes to the Nokia ringtone. Which is based on a very short section of Spanish classical guitar music composed in 1902. But it's safe to say that the opening four notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony da are really well known all around the world. They're iconic. They've been used in adverts for cars, supermarkets, computer chips, Reeboks. They've been remixed for films like that great scene with John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. And it's not just the Fifth Symphony. Do you recognise this one? Beethoven was originally paid to compose this by the Royal Philharmonic Society in London in 1822. Nowadays, you might hear it in a BMW advert, or in the film Die Hard, and it was used as a strange sort of torture in the film A Clockwork Orange. Everywhere you turn, you find Beethoven. How did we get here? How did the music created by one man take on such a global significance? And does our old friend Ludwig van deserve all the hype? you're listening to Roundness, the Queen's Library podcast. So, to try to get to the bottom of all this, I sat down with Miss Grint from the music department here at Queen Elizabeth's. I asked her if she could summarise Beethoven's whole life in 60 seconds.
1: Well, uh, I'm going to try and do the... Basically, I think, here are the key facts you need to know about Beethoven. He was a composer and performer on on the piano mainly, but he also played the viola. And he was born in 1770 in Bonn, Germany. So this is the big 2020, the big 250 celebration of his birth. He he had a really strong musical education and he was a bit of a child prodigy. So he was doing piano tours from the age of seven. His dad was quite a strict teacher. But as he got older, he got taught by some of the greats such as Joseph Haydn probably most notably and he's probably best known for his symphonic writing but he also made huge developments in the genre of the string quartet and solo piano works he died aged 56 in 1827 leaving behind kind of an unmatched musical legacy in, in the kind of genre of classical music he really left composers after him wondering whether they could ever match him I think that's a very, very general
0: summary. I think that's a great summary. You talked about his legacy and it got me wondering how much his legacy was affected by the time period during which he was alive.
1: His music spans or is the transition between the classical and the romantic period, which are really big epochs in classical music. Um, And we see his music pushing boundaries particularly by the end of his output and i think people then were left questioning how do you continue pushing these boundaries he'd kind of left his mark on the musical world in a way which people really hadn't done that before i think and people were trying
2: to grapple with that Beethoven is sometimes given perhaps a bit more, not necessarily more credit than he's due, but people do tend to see him sometimes as this revolutionary figure.
0: That's Miss Partington, head of the music department here at Queen Elizabeth's.
2: Beethoven changed from classical to romantic music and la 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 la. And we certainly, we, we teach him often that way because it, it's, it makes that, the explanation of what happened in music quite, quite easy. Although, of course, we all know... that that music is not easy to pigeonhole and you can't just draw a line and say Beethoven did the transition from classical to romantic because actually what he does in his music a lot of the time had been done before and people say well he messed around with structure, he did this, he put in all these new colourful chromatic chords but no, Haydn had been doing that and Mozart had been doing that and I often I think about a comment that was made to me once by a great professional pianist who said that he thought the greatest revolutionaries were Haydn and actually and Mozart. And if I asked him to pick one, he said, "Oh Haydn was the greatest revolutionary composer ever." but we don't view him like that, and I think sometimes people sort of give Beethoven a bit more credit for that than he's due. I think what it is about Beethoven is just that the power of the music. And yes, you can pigeonhole him into this, oh, he did this transition because of X, Y, and Z, and Mozart hadn't done it, and Haydn hadn't done it. But actually, they if you really look closely, they had. We can't really draw this line. So maybe Beethoven was, to a certain extent, he was around at the right time doing the right sort of thing. But nevertheless, it's the power of his music that, has always been for me what draws me into him never mind the fact that he did this and yeah he maybe he's the god amongst composers perhaps as i said he changed the the way we view going to a concert and he did this but that's all subsidiary to me because what what really speaks to me is the music and the emotional effect it has because it never fails
0: so in some ways right guy in the right place at the right time not as innovative as he's hyped up to be But he did do some new, innovative, weird stuff – stuff that hadn't been done before. Like his Ninth Symphony, which uses lyrics from a poem called Ode to Joy, by the German writer Friedrich Schiller.
1: Nobody had really ever included singers in a symphonic piece, which is primarily just instruments – had never included vocals as well so that is a really huge artistic decision people will have found it quite strange at the premiere which supposedly went down really well but they definitely will have been surprised by it people have added vocals to um symphonic works since but actually not and and definitely that's a huge influence of beethoven but it actually kind of didn't take off in it's not like everyone now has a chorus with their symphony so it's actually quite good to treat that as a work in itself as opposed to how did that affect the symphony. Some people didn't think he was that great at the time. I've seen Verdi writing that he thinks the ode to joy is really over the top and a bit banal. Totally wrapped up in this whole thing is, is it being his last symphony and he's deaf and he can't hear how much the audience appreciate his innovation and you know the deaf genius and the struggling artist it all comes together in this really nice story which I don't want to say story as in it's just a story I think it probably did happen but it makes for a nice selling point doesn't it
0: it is a great story. I wonder, when it comes to his deafness, have we underrated or overrated it?
1: I feel like the he's deaf thing has really sold itself well because I think it's the kind of thing you play a lay musician, a piece of Beethoven for the first time and they're like, oh, this is pretty good. And you say, and he was deaf. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. That's suddenly way more um, expressive and exciting. And so I think that has sold well and has done well for his reputation. It's kind of built up with the idea that it's probably heightened his other senses and his creativity. But actually, I think it's massively overhyped. He'd been composing for decades already by the point he started losing his hearing, and it's not like it happened overnight. It was a process of, in itself, a decade at least, until he totally lost his hearing you know, there's a lot of theory that goes into writing music. And by the time you're quite an established musician, you've got a really well-developed, what we call an inner ear. So you can look at a piece of notation and you can hear that note for note in your head. And so in that way, the deafness, I think for me is not significant because it would have had any impact on his compositional ability at all but more that it's just really, really tragic and traumatic that somebody whose whole life revolves around sound and music making, that world is taken away from him and he has only access to it kind of through the notes and through vibrations and feeling that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder if you could say something about how Beethoven became so popular and what was happening with the concept of taste, not in the sense of food's flavour, but in the sense of good art during the period in which he was composing.
1: Rather than the pressure being on the composer to write something that's good or bad, the pressure's actually turned and put on the audience member so that if you don't like the music, That's your fault. You don't have very good taste or you didn't understand. You're not very clever. You're not sophisticated enough. Rather than the onus being on the composer to please you, basically. And I think that's something that heavily affects artistic composition in in music and the visual arts and performing arts after that. It's like, if you don't like something, actually, is that an issue with your taste? Or is that an issue with the quality of the performance? And it's really hard to disentangle
0: that. What happens if you don't like it?
1: I think he's so well established as a great composer now that if you say, well, I don't really like it, then people will look down on you. I mean, who is people in that scenario? It's kind of the old school, like boomer generation. It's people that really believe in cultural elitism and people that have worked really hard to get to know the music of Beethoven and They get to know it because, well, it's great, so it's of value. And so there's this kind of vicious cycle. And so it's quite hard to say anything against it. But then there's loads of people that don't like Beethoven because they also just don't like classical music, full stop. I think often they are basing it off a very, very small sample size. Classical music, for some reason, gets lumped together as one genre. Like I saw this poster the other day for some headphones and it was like, it's great for all types of music, like hip hop, R&B, trap, uh, I don't know, other popular genres, and then classical at the end. And I just thought, well, what type of classical? Like baroque, minimalist, neoclassical, late romantic. There are loads of different types of music within classical music and niche genres, which are totally different to other types of classical music, that when people say, I don't like classical music, I think they typically mean like Mozart and Beethoven. But there's a lot more going on in the genre. In quite an unimaginable way today, I think we take for granted how often we are exposed to music, be that through advertising jingles or in the background of shops and on you know on the TV and it's you know Spotify and YouTube it's kind of instantly accessible everywhere you want it and even if you don't want it it's there. Whereas going back to these times we don't have recordings yet. So the only way you can experience music is through live performance. So when are you going to hear it? You're going to hear it in the concert halls and Most people probably, if you're of of the middle class, have a piano in their home. In fact, that's a huge thing at the time of Beethoven, people start buying pianos, so they can listen to their own music at home. Therefore, because you can only hear live performances, a premiere of a huge orchestral work is a really significant thing for every person in the local area and beyond, if you're significant, because it kind of goes out by post and, oh, so-and-so is just premier their symphony and everyone kind of knows and therefore I think it's much easier to track the nuances like people talk about the hidden things going on in Beethoven's structure of his pieces and I think if you don't know anything about classical music you're not going to hear those nuances but that's fair enough because you've heard so much other music
0: Here's Miss Partington talking a bit more about concert audiences during Beethoven's time.
2: I think an important thing about Beethoven is how he changed, for the good or perhaps even actually for the, for the bad, is how he changed the world of concert programming in that up till Beethoven, concerts were programmed and they'd all be what was in the day, contemporary music. And then Beethoven came along and the audiences just fell in love with his symphonies and his piano concertos and and numerous other things and they wanted to hear them again and again and again and again. And and he really changed the way that concert programming worked in that there was suddenly this clamour to keep hearing Beethoven and even today there is this clamour to keep hearing <laughs> Beethoven but actually now you know a whole raft of other composers so I think that he has this legacy in that his music did that to going to a concert and hearing classical music and it really changed this idea of you would just go and hear what was contemporary music to being able to go and hear you know music again and again and again because it, it, it's popular and I think that's that's perhaps the biggest legacy, and perhaps why he is revered a little, uh, or a lot, depending on who you are.
0: And it does depend on who you are. Not everyone loves Beethoven. Even back then, not all of his works were received warmly. Like the opera he wrote.
2: So I was
1: delving into this, and from what I can see... Which made me laugh was that so his only opera is called Fidelio, but it was originally called um, Leonora. Um, I think the premiere was a huge flop. I think it, it didn't make very much money. Audiences didn't really like it. So it's actually kind of no surprise that he would run back to it and think, well, I have to change this. That was disastrous. Which is funny because I think so often when we think of him making edits to his works and constantly making changes to his compositions, we see that as a, wow, this composer's, Beethoven's really striving for perfection here, Uh, this kind of unattainable ideal, which is a really romanticised idea, which I think is pent up in him being a genius and always working and always struggling. But actually, in this sense, it's a really pragmatic reason why he restructured it. It was because it did really badly. Like, well, that didn't go very well. If it's going to be played again, how am I going to change it?
0: I noticed that Haydn, who was Beethoven's teacher, composed 104 symphonies, whereas Beethoven composed just nine. Do you think Beethoven's tendency to revise and rewrite his pieces led to him writing fewer pieces compared to other composers like Haydn?
1: Beethoven's symphonies are a lot longer than Haydn's and Mozart's. They're, you know, around 45, 50 minutes long, which is a really substantial piece. I think that the first movement of Beethoven's symphonies, first symphony, is longer than most symphonies that came before in their entirety. So Beethoven really pushed the boundaries of how long these works could be. So even though there's only nine, in minutes, they're probably a bit more comparable. So that's one thing, the length. Second of all, Haydn and Mozart were court composers. So they were hired by the court and paid money to produce music to accompany their royal dinners and their big state affairs. And, oh, I need a piece of music to go with this speech and so on. So they might ask for a symphony. It was basically the only real way to make money as a composer before Beethoven was to be employed by either the church or the court. So they kind of churning out music as and when is demanded of them. That's not to say they don't have any autonomy in what they create, but they're still working for somebody. Whereas what's really significant with Beethoven is that he has these royal patrons, but they're just paying him a stipend because they think he's quite good at it. So he is under no pressure in the same way to keep churning out this music to make money, to put food on the table, to keep surviving. He has that flexibility and freedom to write music as and when it appeals to him. And in that way, he can kind of appeal to supply and demand. It's quite helpful to him not to churn out lots of music because it leaves people wanting more. I think it like creates a buzz and a hype in a way that today... I think we'd be pretty miffed if our favourite artist or band or whoever we listen to nowadays released an album every week. I mean, on one level, we'd probably be quite happy because it gives us more content to listen to. But on the other hand, we think, well, they can't have put their heart and soul into this. It can't be their greatest work if it's only taken them a week to write. So there's kind of that element to it.
2: He was in, also aided by the sort of the political situation at the time, and with the French Revolution starting, and this idea that the class system had gradually had to had to go, and that people were more equal than in the past, and that musicians and composers didn't, you know, shouldn't be slaves to the aristocracy. And Beethoven, I I admire him for standing up for the fact that as an artist, he felt he was equal to anybody else. I like that he pursued this idea of you know I'm an individual and I'm going to stand up for my art and you know shucks to the rest of you.
0: <laughs> and And we see it across other media forms mm-hmm. so you've got da Vinci probably the most mm-hmm. famous visual artist but has mm-hmm. very few surviving paintings at least.
1: I think that's interesting because there's this relationship between visual art and kind of sound art in the way that you might think about music is that these paintings if the original you know canvas doesn't survive we no longer have that piece of art whereas with music you might actually lose the original manuscript but actually the the piece of art like we have what we call the score which is kind of the dots on the page and we've got the sound which is what's produced when a musician plays those dots and i think people think of the art as the sound as the music itself So what happens when you lose the score? Well, hopefully somebody else had another copy. Does that mean it's less valuable? What I'm saying is it would be very easy for lots of da Vinci paintings. I don't know how many he made, but he probably made more than we have today. Mm -hmm. And if they got destroyed, you know, in a fire, or I don't know, they got broken somehow, we no longer have that piece. Whereas with music-
0: You can recreate it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's what I mean.
0: There's certainly a difference in the place or status of the author in terms of the relation of the author to the artwork.
1: Yeah, because you've you- also got the performer and where do they fit?
0: Exactly, it's much more complicated with, with music.
1: Yeah think
0: so yeah no for sure and i I wonder if the performer is perhaps not more important but very important like there are there any times you've heard a beethoven piece and thought this is a really terrible job whoever's playing Mm. or or conducting or whatever the issue is and i wonder yeah yeah. okay so it is possible to murder a beethoven piece
1: yeah oh completely i think that makes it even more murderable (laughs) Especially because I think often the, well, Beethoven's, I'll move into the side, but this kind of area of music, say if we go to Mozart, a lot of his pieces, the dots on the page are actually not that difficult compared to some of the later pieces of music that get written. So it's quite classic for school groups to just go for a Mozart symphony and kind of play it really, really badly because there's no shape, there's no phrase, there's no nuance in any of the lines or any expression. Which is fine, and I think it's really good to get people playing this music. It doesn't always have to be the most perfect interpretation of the music, but it definitely is murdered. <laughs> I mean, it's not <laughs> the work of art that, that it was probably conceived to be.
0: Mm. Yeah, Is it ever an issue or something which produces anxiety to think that all the versions of, say, the Ninth Symphony that you've heard mm. might be quite substantially different from all of the times it was performed in Beethoven's lifetime. Or or it doesn't have to be the Mm. ninth, but like any Mm. piece, Mm. it's it's possible, perhaps not probable, but it's possible that for whatever reason, maybe there are issues with the manuscript versus the score or that there are Mm -hmm. issues with interpreting certain commands in what's written down. Mm. But it might be quite different or at least somewhat different And do you ever think that we can never, uh, this is maybe a bit of a romantic idea, but we can never quite know the Beethoven, we just know Mm. of Beethoven.
1: No, I, I mean, you raise a really interesting point. Something that got really popular, well, it's still popular now, but started being really popular in the late 20th century was historically informed performance, or HIP for short which is kind of groups of musicians that thought the instruments that were playing this Beethoven symphony on are nothing like the instruments that they would have had back then and they wouldn't have sat like this as a group and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. There's so many differences that we know even just by reading Beethoven's letters and so on and all these different composers' letters, we know that there were differences so they kind of set about trying to recreate as best as possible the sound world of these pieces as the composer intended them now as you say can we ever really get a true accurate reenactment of that performance uh probably not but people certainly tried i mean playing on the correct instruments for a start helps i mean okay everyone knows what a flute is i'd say the kind of silvery long tube, they're a really, really, really old instrument. It's likely that the ancient Greeks used flute-like instruments just in the terms of a kind of hollowed out, probably bone, but just generally a tube and just a like a piece cut away from the top of it so that you could make a sound and then you'd probably drill some holes in or hit some holes into the tube in order to make different notes. So flutes are a really simple instrument, theoretically and the flutes that Beethoven would have had at that time or his his flautist would have had access to would have been made of wood. They might have had a couple of keys, maybe three or four keys, I think, by the time of Beethoven, which just helped the player access certain notes more easily than they would have without those keys. Gradually, over the next 150 years, huge developments were made to the flute by instrument makers, which just essentially meant, first of all, making flutes out of metal to make them more sonorous, and therefore they can be played far more loudly than just when they're made of wood, and also adding a lot more keys to them, which makes kind of the tone throughout the instrument a lot more even and the pitches of each note a lot more stable, basically, trying to make it an easier instrument to play also makes it a bit harder because you've got more keys to manage but certainly develops the instrument but because now the modern flute is this metal one with loads of keys on it's a different sound now to the flutes that beethoven would have had so only we can only really imagine what beethoven had in mind by playing a replica of a wooden you know three four keyed flute is the idea some orchestras kind of now specialize in this historically informed performance. So one of the famous ones is the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. They have loads of really good videos on YouTube where they get their members to introduce these developments of flutes and oboes and clarinets and bassoons and violins. I mean, violins are strange because the shape of their body used to be a bit different and the the bows used to be a bit different and the strings would be made out of other materials, and it all makes slight differences to the sound world.
0: Does this historically informed performance actually benefit us, the listeners?
1: Oh, it's a really tough question. I think this came up in my university interview. (laughs) Um, Benefit is a really loaded word. And I think I'd probably say that we are fortunate to have expanded what's available to us. I mean, obviously in the 20th century, we have electronic instruments make a huge rise and that's totally changed the way that we make sounds nowadays with guitars and keyboards and synthesizers and so on. So there's there's changes in the way that we make sounds all the time. Are we kind of benefited from these developments? It makes some things easier, it makes some things harder. I think at the end of the day, I think we need to, appreciate a wider variety of sounds and see what's beautiful in them. All of these different instruments have their pros and cons. It's
0: a very diplomatic answer.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think I said something a bit too, I think in my interview, I said, well, obviously our instruments today are much better. And it turns out the man interviewing me was a historical recorder player or something. Uh, so he was a bit offended by it. But a bit, yeah. a bit awkward. Yeah, a little bit.
0: But to sort of return to the original point, Can we ever get back to the original version of the piece as Beethoven intended it?
1: There are often so many errors with these scores. A new publication was made in the early 20th century of Beethoven. It might have been Beethoven 9. And they found the old edition that most people have been using had over 3,000 mistakes in compared to Beethoven's original manuscript.
0: That's a lot of mistakes.
1: That's a lot of mistakes. And we never really know whether the manuscript that we have left is the composer's intentions, that's a really, really huge question. Beethoven was known for making edits to the score even after it had gone to the publishers and he'd kind of leave these little pieces of paper in the score, you know, in a, say, I don't know, where people bought music in those times, in a bookshop. And so you'd buy your piece of Beethoven that you wanted to play on your piano at home and in it would be a note saying, Beethoven actually wanted the second note to be piano soft rather than loud as it's written. So he was constantly making edits and they probably happened after we even have these final manuscripts and he probably would have changed it now. So how can we ever recreate the perfect version? We probably can't. But it's certainly an endeavour that people have gone to.
0: And even if we probably can't obtain the original version of the piece, Beethoven's music gets used and reused Year after year, with his popularity showing no signs of decreasing, so many people all over the world continue to feel a real connection to his work. Here's Miss Partington again.
2: For me, his music has been inspirational and powerful. And for me, he is the composer that never fails to elicit some kind of emotional response from me and actually whenever i have had the privilege of of doing any beethoven with pupils either listening to it or performing it his music is always the music that elicits an emotional response from the pupils or from me or from the class as a whole whatever it is and i think that is supremely powerful i've never had similar reactions with music by other composers yes we get you know you get emotional responses but beethoven never fails
0: But Miss Grint has a different way of looking at things.
2: I think because
1: his music was written in a way and written about in a way that depicts him as emotional and a creative genius and an artist, I think we read in to his music that this emotion makes it more human. And so in this way, because his music is so inherently emotional, it creates universality because it's like we can all relate to it in a way and I mean this certainly for the audiences that were listening then. If you think of the Ode to Joy, the text is all about celebrating humanity and kind of brotherhood and coming together so we can see that it has kind of underlying universal themes but even today we've kept that meaning of celebration and universality in that piece and therefore in all of his music. His music gets played at celebratory events. I think it got played after the Berlin Wall came down and it's kind of the music for the EU now. It's kind of this unifying piece of music, regardless of what is actually in the dots on the page in the music that he wrote down. That's the meaning that we've read into it and we've kind of taken that to be the meaning of his music. I think it's really easy to ascribe a meaning to a text, or in this case, a piece of art. And then every following time we hear that, we still hear that meaning that we projected onto it, whether it was there intentionally or not. Something that really took off in the 19th century is the idea that instrumental music is unlike most of the other arts because it's not kind of brought down by human language or human creation in the way that a text is automatically in the human realm because it's written in a language that we speak. Instrumental music is making those utterances but without those words and so some people project this idea of universality in instrumental music because It both represents something, but it's not representing something through human utterances. That's a really strange thing to say. But because we can't pin it down to words, it kind of exists in this more metaphysical state. If you imagine opera as being lots of words and a story that's being told by humans in word form, like that's art of the people, instrumental music is creating that same story, but without the banal words. And I think that's something that Beethoven definitely subscribed to, is that importance of how metaphysical and life-changing his music can be.
0: For Miss Partington, instrumental music's lack of words, and therefore its lack of clear meaning, makes it even more powerful.
2: I like to think that a big part of it is is mystical and unknown. And actually, I'm not always a big fan of trying to analyze music so that it loses its mystique. And, and one of the wonderful things about music is that it has this power over us. And I think it's wonderful to keep that power and not to try and sometimes work out why is that, but actually to just to accept it, that it is great art and it will have that powerful effect on us. You can't always pigeonhole it into categories. You don't always know why it has such a response on us actually, aren't we privileged to study a subject like this and and try and grapple with it and, and work out why, or sometimes just accept that it is what it is.
0: But music critics are paid to form and then share opinions about music. So it just doesn't make sense for them to let the music do the talking itself. If they did that, they'd be out of a job. So instead, they found many ways of analysing what makes Beethoven's music so great.
1: One of the ways in which music critics have decided that Beethoven's music is great or so great is because of its internal unity. The opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is really famous. The one, da 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 da, it opens with that little figure. And then the whole symphony is based off that tiny little, what we call a motif like those repeat three repeated notes and then descending by a third that is like the basis for the entire symphony and that hadn't really been done before and people thought well that's genius that's so clever to have something that's so organic that it grows out of this tiny little cell and becomes this monumental work that's really really clever and then they kind of wrote about this a lot who's they are often German music critics and music historians and historians more broadly, particularly in the late 19th century. They're writing about how great this organicism is in his music. And it then becomes the way that we judge all other composers' music afterwards. Well, how how unified is it? Does it come from this beginning cell? Where do we hear these themes? Where does this come back? Is this new material? Does this fourth movement relate to the first movement? It kind of becomes the lens through which we determine all other pieces of music's quality. And it all kind of comes back to Beethoven. So it kind of puts him in a great position. It puts him on top because we're using him as the value system for how we're going to rate anything else that comes afterwards. And I think on the one hand, his music is really good. I I really like his music, but also I think there's a lot of him being in the right place at the right time that has allowed him to become such a pinnacle of focus and aesthetic judgment in music.
0: You talked about the idea of unity being motif Mm. that is imbued throughout the whole symphony. You know, it begins with it and then you get it kind of recurring. Mm. Couldn't we also just see that as repetitiveness? What's the distinction?
1: Well, I suppose the idea is that he hasn't just repeated that idea again and again and again. He's developed it. So the big idea of kind of having the middle piece of your piece of music, developing the initial idea, and how do you develop a piece of music in music that's kind of turning it upside down or doubling its length or transposing it to a different key Or what else could you do? You could put it in another instrument or there are loads of different ways that you could adapt this tiny little cell and make it different, basically. You know, like in maths with transformations, you know, you can make it bigger and you can make it smaller, but still maintaining that same shape. Basically, there are lots of ways that you can manipulate this tiny idea so that it doesn't seem really repetitive, but it seems like there's something constantly changing. But this idea is still based on that initial seed. And I think that's something they were really excited by. I think it also means that there was something that these art critics, these music critics could, you know, open up the score of this symphony and they could say, oh, I I found another place where this melody is actually based on the first one. It looks a bit different, but it's actually upside down. If we turn that melody upside down, we get the first one again. Kind of makes it into a bit of a, a code. You're trying to find the answer to this piece of music and you can find that by seeing all the ways that Beethoven's transformed this initial seed. And I think that makes it quite exciting that there's something hidden beneath the score that even the listener might not be able to hear.
0: Yeah. And I suppose it also justifies the position of the critic if there are things to unearth
1: Mm. um, or
0: investigate that perpetuates the role of the critic, where sometimes I mean I mean it's happened throughout history that that the the position of the critic comes under fire for being extraneous or unnecessary Mm. or or pointless. And having those sort of very easy to lay out pieces of evidence makes their job easier, I suppose. The idea that Beethoven's work or the popularity of certain aspects of it says more about the people listening to it than it does about him himself. And kind of the extent Mm. to which his popularity or notoriety or whatever you want to call it is something which is not within his own hands as a composer. completely.
1: Yeah. I really do think it was kind of a case of him being in the right place at the right time because the 19th century sees so many changes in how society operated which was really conducive to his being deified. So just for example, we start getting loads of statues put up of people in a way that we didn't really have before, or we get statues of of musicians. We didn't really have statues of them before. So a statue of Beethoven's the first one to go up in Germany. And we get museums dedicated to individuals and creatives, and that has a huge impact on creating a lasting legacy for somebody and holding them up as somebody worthwhile. Because who, did, who would you have collections of before? is probably kings and nobility and significant people. So having a museum says, yeah, I was really important. Also, things that change are we have an expanding middle class So there's suddenly a lot more people that can afford to go to concerts and they want to be part of this cultural product. We have the rise of the historian and the music critics, as you were just saying. Somebody that's really important to do with Beethoven is E.T.A. Hoffman, who he kind of writes that music is the most romantic of all the arts. And suddenly loads of people start taking music really seriously as something that we should think of in this way, because beforehand... Music was really only something to accompany you know, a, a nice dinner or something to accompany a dance. It was not actually the main focus at all, whereas now philosophers and society have brought it into life. And who's writing music at the time? Well, Beethoven. So suddenly we need to think about his music as more than just a nice thing to accompany, but actually the main event. So actually concerts start being a thing. People didn't really listen to music in the way that, if I want to go and listen to a piece of classical music, I would go down to the Barbican and the London Symphony Orchestra would probably be playing something. And there's quite a big process and etiquette that comes along with it. Whereas pre-Beethoven concert going wasn't really a thing and even if there was a concert people would chat the whole way through they'd walk around there probably won't be that won't be that many seats in the time of beethoven however this idea of kind of people sitting down and listening to the piece of music and that being the main event becomes more of a thing so obviously that's going to help people's perception of music and its importance in society
0: so it's a structural change rather than Something he, as a god, engendered himself.
1: Well, it's something to be aware of. Mm. Um, I think so often he's written as he is such a genius. In in the notes of his symphonies, there is genius, but also it surely helped by all these changing societal structures that help lift him up in the way that he is.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I want to end with one final counterpoint from Miss Partington.
2: I do tend to accept, and I like the notion that in the world there are just people who are geniuses. And Beethoven was one, and I think Mozart was probably one, and there are probably a whole host of others. And I like to think there are people that are just unexplainable and you have to you admire them and you just have to let them get on with being who they are and what they are and accept them for just being greater than the rest of us and on a different plane
0: So there you go ultimately you decide whether Beethoven was a genius or just a guy in the right place at the right time Thank you for listening to this episode of Roundness. If you liked it, have a look through our previous episodes. Topics range from pirates and assassination attempts on the king to stolen water and homemade alcohol. Thank you to my guests, Miss Grint and Miss Partington. Their expertise and opinions about Beethoven drove this episode and without them it simply wouldn't have been possible. Thank you also to the London Symphony Orchestra the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic, and the Southbank Sinfonia for providing us with recordings of Beethoven's work. You can find details for all our sources in the episode notes. If you have a topic you would like us to cover in a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. Email us. You can reach us at library at qebarnett.co.uk